Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. Today, we're happy to welcome you to founding partner Andreas and general partner Kevin from Sapphire Ventures. Sapphire Ventures was originally established as the corporate VC arm of German software giant SAP before becoming an independent VC in 2011. They now have 8 billion funds under management. Andreas led the launch of Sapphire's first European office last summer, bringing the fund back to the continent and they've been busy since. They've established a team of seven investors and have backed great companies like Kazoo, Wise, Monday.com and Currency Cloud. Have you ever wondered how you can use relationship analytics to spot the next European unicorn? Europe is incredibly diverse and finding the next kick-ass European startup is not for the faint of heart. In Europe, no single hub is responsible for spawning all the next tech success stories. Europe's 381 unicorns come from over 65 cities and data-driven sourcing is integral to the success of European VCs. Join us in learning from the best, our partners Affinity and Deal Room, as we deep dive on how relationship intelligence can put your sourcing on steroids. Register now to the event at the European VC's LinkedIn page. The event will be held online on the 7th of April at 7pm Central European time. Tickets are free, but limited, so grab them while you can. Kevin and Andreas, welcome to the show. It's great having you both here with us. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Andreas. Thank you very much for having us. Pleasure. Before we start this interview, I really want to dive into both you and, of course, also Sapphire Capital. You guys are really, really big. Uh, you're a $6.8 billion player that comes from Silicon Valley and now really doubles down on Europe. So I'm super curious to hear why do you have this increased focus on Europe and, and what have you been doing in Europe for the last <laughs> 10 years? Awesome. Thanks again for having us. So a quick background on myself. I've been with the firm uh, a little bit over 15 years. I'm a co-founder of uh, Sapphire. I first started out in the US for the first seven years. And then since 2012, 2013, have been spending more and more time uh, over here um, in Europe. Prior to Sapphire, I was an entrepreneur myself, worked for several startups, co-founded uh, a venture-backed startup to kind of know the, the process of, of fundraising and trying to build a company myself. And, and because of that, have um, lots of empathy for founders and teams. Perhaps real quick, uh, companies that I have been involved with so far um, include Logdogic, Iovation, DocuSign, here in Europe, perhaps, uh, Criteo um, and Currency Cloud, to name a few. And I'm currently on the boards of Contentful, Matillion, and Yapoli. So that's a quick one on myself. Thank you again, uh, Andreas and team, for having us on this program. Uh, so I'm, I'm Kevin Distel. Uh, I'm one of the partners uh, with Sapphire. I've been with the firm for almost 10 years now. Most of that was actually based in San Francisco. Uh, and then at the beginning of last year, I relocated to London to join Andreas to help really build out our, our European efforts in a much bigger way. 
Andreas mentioned that he's been out here for a decade by himself, and we've done a fantastic job building out a great European and Israeli portfolio, but we saw a really large opportunity. So um, I made the move, and things have been super exciting out here. My background is uh, more in, in finance, so investment banking and then growth stage private equity. I went to business school at Stanford and then started with Sapphire directly after that when there were seven or eight of us, and we had just rolled out into our first $350 million fund. And then fast forward to today, there, there are over 80 of us, and you mentioned 6.8, but a month and a half ago, we announced our latest set of funds. So that brings us to 8.8 billion in USD in assets under management. So there's just a, it's been a really good run and uh, we want to replicate a lot of what we've seen in the US and globally in, in Europe in a much bigger way. Let's get the bio on Sapphire. A lot of people, especially listeners of our show, know you also as a fund of fund. So maybe let, let's get the rundown on, okay, you have 8.8 billion under management, but also what have you invested in as a firm? What are you focused on uh, stage-wise, sector-wise, so on? And also how does the fund of fund <laughs> play fit into all of this? I can give a little bit of that across the strategies and then Andreas definitely jump in. So Sapphire, uh, as the umbrella organization, we have three primary strategies, investment strategies. And then there's actually a fourth leg to the to the stool. So there's Sapphire Growth, which is what Andreas and I spend most of our time on, where we invest in expansionary and growth stage tech startup. It really manifests itself in Series B-ish all the way to pre-IPO type rounds. We can be flexible on check sizes, writing anywhere from 10 to 100 plus million, um, looking for really fast-growing, category-defining um, businesses companies we call companies of consequence. That's on the growth side. We have Sapphire Partners, which is the more of the fund-to-funds effort, which invests in emerging managers across the globe and has a real, has had a really good run. Um, it's a separate group of individuals uh, who manage that portfolio, but it have been great in developing the LP ecosystem. The third piece is Sapphire Sport, which is focused on earlier stage sports media entertainment and more broadly consumer investments. And so they'll do a little bit more of the seed and series A type investments. And then the, the fourth leg of the stool I mentioned, it's actually a huge component of the Sapphire platform is what we call portfolio growth. And that is a roughly 20 person team that just focuses all day, every day, adding value to our portfolio and to our pipeline. And so that team helps with customer introductions, go-to-market partnerships, international expansion, so bringing U.S. companies into Europe, et cetera, and European companies into the U.S. in a big way. Executive-level recruiting has been a huge component of that. And so that that team is one we've invested very heavily behind to actually move the needle for our, our underlying companies. But that really is what Sapphire more broadly um, encompasses. So, you know, one of these, the topics we've been talking a lot about in our show, obviously, you know, is U.S. funds coming to Europe. It's really interesting to have you guys and to hear your thoughts on that, you know, understanding maybe two core things. First, how do you see yourselves distinguishing from the existing funds in Europe? But also, you know, would it be really interesting to have your thoughts around, you know, how would you just oppose your activity in Europe to other U.S. funds who are already in Europe or many that are now starting to, you know, boost up activities here? Since I have been here, the European tech landscape has evolved significantly, right, over the last 10 years. When I first started spending more time here, you know, it was mostly e-commerce and marketplace title startups. In the last years, 
you could see that there's more and more a rise of, of kind of enterprise, B2B kind of startups coming. With that, there also is the requirement of, at some point, going to the US, right? If you build an e-commerce company or a marketplace company, you can typically stay in your local geography and build quite a successful big business. Um, but if you want to be successful in the B2B space, you at some point have to move to the US. And that, I think, requires a little bit of a different mindset, a little bit of a, of a different uh, risk appetite. And I think that is where we definitely differentiate from other kind of perhaps more European-based investors, at least the, the traditional ones. And then also, as Kevin mentioned, we have a dedicated team that helps companies with scaling, execution, and especially with internationalization, right? So we actually have a, a center of excellence where we have kind of playbooks and you know, other advice for companies that wants to go kind of international and especially kind of to the US. That is kind of one area where we definitely, you know, are different from European investors. I would say from American investors, um, the typical American investor, we are perhaps different in the sense that we have been here for a while. Uh, we also have kind of European roots. We have a very strong cultural understanding of European founders and, and kind of the landscape, which translates in us being very collaborative, wanting to help our companies as much as we can. If you look at on the on the latter side, as uh, as you look at some of the U.S. funds, us included, right, who are are moving into the the European ecosystem. One, we are returning to our roots a bit, as Andreas mentioned, but he's also Andreas has been on the ground for over a decade here, um, which others can't necessarily say. And then I would just look at the resources that people are deploying, funds are deploying out here. We now have a team of seven people, which usually surprises entrepreneurs and, and other VCs on just how large that team is. We're continuing to grow. Three of the partners on the Sapphire team are now based in London. So there's a huge contention of us out here. So we want to make a real go of it because we see a lot of what, at least personally, I, I saw and, and some of the evolution of Silicon Valley. And I'm newer in my career, having just been in VC for 10 years. But you can see that flywheel of success begets success and innovation creates risk-taking and higher risk equals higher reward. A, a lot of those different nuances of, of what made Silicon Valley Silicon Valley we're now seeing in the European markets and people are bringing folks over here. So it's great for the ecosystem as you get more capital. But we do think of ourselves as quite differentiated because we're creating a real team out here, real devoting real resources. We have some of those portfolio growth resources out here. We're continuing to build behind that effort. We do see ourselves as quite differentiated from both the, the local European funds and uh, and some of the U.S. funds that are, are parachuting in. So you're making a big bet on Europe, but I'm curious to hear U.S. fund, is that separated from a European fund or is it a global fund? And also, could you talk to the ratio in your portfolio of how many U.S. deals, how many European deals, so on, just to understand where that 8.8 billion is being deployed? <laughs> so it's a global fund. We invest uh, globally, whether it's in the U.S., throughout Europe, in Israel, and other geographies. So it's, it's one fund. The partnership is also designed and organized around one partnership. So in terms of 
the decision-making. It's the global group who ultimately discuss these opportunities and then make the decisions on whether to invest or not. So all of this is, is really coming from a central hub. There is a beauty to that. It's very it's specifically designed around that because we want there to be a U.S. influence in a lot of what we do in Europe and vice versa. There's just so many synergies cross-border in, in that respect. Plus, we can leverage a lot of those, for instance, those portfolio growth efforts cross-border because the European businesses, if they truly want to be a company of consequence, like we're investing in these hopefully 10, 20 plus billion dollar type businesses that are category defining businesses, they're going to have to enter the U.S. market at some point. And the U.S. companies are always very hungry to enter into the, the European market. So the short story is that it's one global fund. It's one global group that ultimately are making these investment decisions. I think that is a major strength, right? We're looking for the best companies in a certain category, and we don't have certain funds necessarily earmarked for Europe or for the US. The goal is to invest in the best companies that we can, those, as Kevin said, that have the potential to become you know, companies of consequence, category-defining companies. And so it's a collaboration between the US and Europe to get into those companies. And in, in the end, if we achieve that, it doesn't matter where, where the companies are headquartered. The portfolio mix, I'm curious. So Sapphire, Seven Partners, how much money? <laughs> tell us. <laughs> I can tell you which companies we have invested uh, yeah. here in, in Europe already, right? It's companies like Critio, like Adverity, Contentful, Gorgeous, Verbit, Yapoli, Tesseract, Matillion, Unmind, Monday.com, right, which had a huge IPO, Kazoo, which had, you know, went public, buy us back, you know, Kaltura, which went public, Currency Cloud, which was just acquired by Visa, Wise, formerly TransferWise, which went public, right? So we actually have invested in quite a number of very, you know, successful companies already. Um, in addition, you know, we mentioned the other strategy, which is investing in early stage managers and funds. We are very much invested in the ecosystem here as well, having, you know, we can't disclose, but having invested in some of the very premier funds in, in Europe and in Israel. And then also with our early consumer tech fund, right, the Sapphire Sports, we have invested a bunch in Europe. And again, there's no real earmark or limit to what we can do in Europe, I think is perhaps the most direct way of answering your question, right? As long as we find the great companies here. And I think us building out the team, having moved over here, um, you know, us hiring over here is a great testament to the European ecosystem and what we want to do over here. Okay, so you've made this string of hugely successful investments here. How have you worked on getting access to them? How do you engage with the ecosystem that is beneath you? Because in Europe, we are notoriously uh, underfunded in the Series B and upward stage. So, so I'm super curious to hear how you engage with that ecosystem that we have here. So we do everything that, that I think everyone is doing. So we certainly cultivate a, a deep relationship with a, a broad network of earlier stage venture capitalists. We do have the partners team who invest in some of these early stage folks. There is a, a very distinct Chinese wall on information um, passing, but those help us like with relationships with those underlying GPs, um, just because they're, they're closer and part of the family. We also spend most of our weeks networking with external GPs as well as at other funds. 
And then in terms of like finding the right companies, we're doing it all. We're doing, you know, we're doing our own outreach. We get a plenty of inbounds and referrals. We're going to conferences. Um, we do a lot of market mapping to identify what industries are of most interest, the subsectors within those, identifying the key players in each of those subsectors, and then trying to make the best investment there. And then in terms of like how we bro- break our way into these businesses is we are unique in that we have both the U.S. and the European presence, including a really large presence in Europe, which others don't always have. We try to help be active in these businesses. So we're generally taking an active role in helping them become successful and achieve their dreams that the CEOs have been after for the last decade plus in some circumstances. And then we keep mentioning portfolio growth, but that entity and that effort in itself is just vastly needle moving for potential companies. So when they see when they talk to our, our portfolio company CEOs, they hear in spades just how much that was helpful on hiring a number of C-suite level individuals, helping them expand into the U.S. market, focused on centers of excellence around marketing and sales and go-to-market. Those efforts and ones that we've invested very heavily behind really are what help get us in the door and, and win some of these deals. But in terms of like filling the top of the funnel from a sourcing perspective, it's, it's kind of all of the above. I'm curious to hear from both of you on your experiences of coming to Europe. So you've been here for a long, long time, Andreas. So I, I think let's ask, let let Kevin start and say, okay, you've been here some time now, but but it's still new, and you're st- I'm sure that you've had a lot of ahas <laughs> of the European ecosystem and how the mode might be different here. Uh, I'm curious to hear your experiences and then afterwards hearing Andreas as well. We'll go, yeah, the reverse order here. <laughs> um, you'll probably get more insights from Andreas, having not only. Uh, grown up and been born out here, but uh, having been out here for the last 10 years. From my perspective, Europe has exceeded my expectations in, in every way. Weather is certainly a little different. I will I will give you that. I'm from California, born and raised. I've been out there my whole life. So um, that's certainly a change. The ecosystem coming out here, I kind of naively thought that it was just going to be a little bit more immature. You know, I'm from Silicon Valley, which is like the heart of startup land. And uh, when I got out here and I'd been definitely doing prep and networking with folks, I was just blown away by um, not only how mature the the startup ecosystem is, but how mature, again, this like flywheel has already been. You have great universities, you have some really great outcomes. So you have folks like, uh, you know, the Revolutes and the Klarnas of the world who are then splintering into the next generation of CEO and founders. They then hire great people who then go and learn and do great things, which then become the next generation after that. You have incredible amounts of capital out here that are investing into these companies, which just help them achieve their goals and become these real companies of consequence in a much bigger way. And so that that was certainly uh, eye-opening for me. I, I didn't doubt that that was going to be the case, but like I, I was just very pleasantly surprised by how mature that was. I also naively came over here thinking, oh, hey, we're going to be like the only ones. But uh, I will say a lot of a lot of folks have seen the similar opportunities we have and, and are coming out here. Again, I think it's really positive for the the industry as a whole. People ask, oh, how does this relate to uh, the competitiveness of the U.S. market and just as competitive on all fronts? But on the very, very positive side, the, the culture, the entrepreneurial spirit out here, all of those have like just really blown me away in a great way. We asked Sean from ProFounders just the other day what he thought about 
the U.S. companies coming here, and and he said, well, for him, since he's uh, upstream to you, it's awesome, it's it's perfect. <laughs> As you said, now you've come over here, and you thought you would be coming alone, and then you realize that you're sitting next to uh, <laughs> next to some of the other guys from the Silicon Valley ecosystem on the flight over here. So I, I'm curious <laughs> to hear how has your entry been in relation to them? Have you helped each other? Have you been working together, or is it is it more competitive between you? From my experience. We, we take a very collaborative approach to all of these things. So whatever you want to call it, competition or, or whatnot, but we end up co-investing with many of the firms that we compete with for deals. And so, yes, there are the upstream folks like top of funnel folks, but even they have started to you know continue to invest along the, the later stages of these businesses. So it's a very collaborative network in general um, of people just trying to find the greatest opportunities. And in many cases, finding the greatest opportunities together. And so we've had a lot of the fund names that would you would think of when you think of like, what are the US funds that came out here along with Sapphire? They have invested post our investments. We have invested post their investments and we have co-invested in a lot of these. And so I don't think there's any sort of like, in, in my experience, there's not like a sharp elbowedness or anything like that. It's a, it's a really collaborative ecosystem. The reason people are venture capitalists, yeah, you can make some money doing it, but it's really to, it's because we love technology and we love helping entrepreneurs achieve those dreams in any way we can. And, and just that, that spirit certainly permeates just as much here as it, it did in the U.S. You'd be in, uh, you'd be in private equity if you uh, liked the sharp elbows instead. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been there. I, I've been there, but uh, yeah. <laughs> The big difference, right, between private equity and VC is like, you know, we are minority shareholders, right? We don't take control. So we are never like owning 50% plus of, of a company, right? So therefore, we always collaborate, right? We always are yeah. co-investors with other firms, with other VCs. And as Kevin said, right, sometimes you compete, for a new investment and then you know you also sit on the board with the same firm with the same investor at, at another company right and sometimes you are you know together on a board and sometimes you're on competing companies on opposite boards right so but in the end you know this is a is a very long-term kind of effort right uh helping to build companies startups and it's very much a relationship that you build, not only with the entrepreneurs, but also with the with the other investors that is like deeply based on trust. Right. So there's definitely rules. Right. And kind of how you behave and what you do type of thing. And I think th this is something I mean, you ask about kind of how did it feel like coming over here with the with the competition? I mean, we're used to that. Right. We, we have always been like that. The whole industry is like that. And I think that is actually also a, a strength of the industry, right? That you that you kind of have these type of situations. So it's all good, I would say. You know, it's funny. People ask about the competition a lot. And this is just my perspective, but people think of it as a zero sum game. So you compete over an individual deal or an individual allocation in a in a round. It's really not like that. Like, there are so many opportunities and there's way more art than science to making these decisions, which we're, we're happy to get, to get into. But if all of the boxes are checked, like everyone knows knows about it, and then certainly valuations can be respective of that. But what Andreas is mentioning is this like multi-game game. I think everyone recognizes, or at least the, the best recognize that 
there is huge opportunity for everyone to go and do some really incredible things with their entrepreneurs and with those teams. It isn't this zero-sum game where if you get one, someone else doesn't get that one. It's a really dynamic industry. Kevin, you brought up the topic of decision-making. <laughs> and I think that's a really interesting topic. And I, I was just looking here in my notes for a quote from a colleague of yours, <laughs> Nino uh, Marakovic. I think that's how you say it. And he, he yep. said, if everyone votes in favor of something, it is a sign that we shouldn't do it. It's two consensus then. Over the years, we have seen that it is the controversial calls that perform the best. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this. I think what Nino spoke about is, is very much our culture. On the one hand side, very much team-oriented, perhaps more than, than other firms, and, and very collaborative. And that means in, a, in the decision-making process, we actually encourage open discussion and also we encourage dissent. Our kind of deal decision-making actually is not consensus-driven, right? So we're not, we're not going down to the, and this is kind of, I think, what Nino meant, going down to the lowest denominator, right, so to speak, where everybody can agree on a certain investment, right? But we very much encourage open discussion, dissent. But then I think what's also very unique about us, once we have made a decision to invest in a company, everybody is on board. Everybody is helpful. Everybody is collaborative, be it a U.S. investment, the European team helping them coming to Europe or a European investment, you know, vice versa, like the U.S. team helping them with entry there or, or contacts or network, you name it. So that's very much kind of our culture. And yeah, as, as Nino said, you know, um, looking back at kind of investments we have made, a lot of the ones that have been kind of the outliers, the very successful ones have been the ones that have been controversially discussed among the team, interestingly enough. Is there any type of power balance between uh, US, Europe teams? I'm curious to know how that how that works inside of your decision-making processes as well. There's a certain number of partners here, a certain number of partners there, and kind of we discuss everything openly and, and the whole investment team is kind of involved. And then we encourage open discussion and then we come to a vote and then that's how the decision is made. Every decision is made as a, as a whole from the group. We spend time looking at U.S. opportunities along with our colleagues and they do the same for the European ones. We, we ultimately want to come to a collective decision. Now, there, there may be dissent in that conversation and where people ultimately feel more strongly pro or more strongly con. But that's the beauty of that process for us. It's not like some people will use the words like satellite offices and things like that. It's not like that at all. We're, we're a one global group. You're seeing the resources that we're deploying out here. We have our colleagues flying out routinely and more so in a post-COVID, hopefully post-COVID world. And so there isn't any of that like power dynamic. It's a really team-oriented uh, group. There's a lot of the information that you gain from, from working with the founders every day, which I imagine is very much what the, the portfolio growth team does. And then to the strategics and, and then the things around the investment world that the investment team has, how do you make sure that you make the most of that intersection point? The organization is quite flat, both within the investment team, but also within the, the broader group. And so we're on calls every week with the portfolio growth team to help stay coordinated on these things. Certain companies at certain times may need a particular thing. Hey, we need to hire a CRO or we're looking for a head of HR or something like that. And so there may be some more resources devoted there or 
or putting on an event around go-to-market, the go-to-market motion, something like that. Portfolio growth, it, it is a limited resource, right? People only have so many hours in a day, and so we need to appropriately allocate those. But it's a very collaborative effort. We also have direct lines to um, not only the CEO, but the broader C-suite. So our portfolio growth team, they may not be working with a, a business like every day. We're advisors, ultimately. We're not trying to operate these businesses. We, we ultimately want to be as helpful and additive to them as possible. And we try to do that in an efficient but very effective way. So it really is just spending a lot of time doing that. Like some firms and funds and even some VCs might be reluctant to do that, but that is something that we've all signed up for in spending a, a great deal of our time ensuring that those efforts are they land appropriately and effectively with our organizations. And so it's a whole spectrum of, of how we interact with them. We have 8.8 .8 billion under management, so we can afford a team like this, right? Which is purely a cost for us, right? Value add to our portfolio companies. But we are at a size with, you know, I think 80 plus people at the moment where you can still have that collaboration, right? We're not too small or too big, so to speak, right? So I think we are at the moment really ideally sized to actually be able to kind of leverage what you mentioned, right? The insights that portfolio growth might have working with certain companies, also talking to kind of industry leaders, getting insights into kind of, you know, what they are looking for. You know, we have like certain things like a CIX report, right, which also helps our portfolio companies to kind of gain insights. What are kind of the, the CIOs looking for in terms of kind of investing in the next coming years, right, buying technology, things like that. So we are at a, at a good size where we can really kind of like still have these personal kind of conversations and interactions and be able to kind of leverage insights from, from both sides and, and kind of become a better firm and, and a better kind of contributor to, to kind of our portfolio companies, I would say. Andreas, Kevin, we are running out of time <laughs> and we always <laughs> end our episodes with a quick fire round. A quick fire round is where we ask a couple of quick answer questions and we try to keep it 30 to 60 seconds each. Are you ready? Ready to go. Ready. <laughs> Awesome. So first question, in B2B, what areas excite you the most that other people don't really feel that excited about? Andreas, let's start with you. Well, this, this is a super trick question, right? Because I think, you know, anything that ends up becoming successful, everybody will, <laughs> will know about, right? I think, you know, back in the days, we were always investing in what we called boring tech, right? Boring AI, you know, infrastructure, these types of things, fintech you know, even, right? But that is now something everybody has caught on to. So, but, you know, tricky question for me to answer. I, I defer to Kevin. <laughs> yeah, 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 I get the hard part of the, exactly. the answer. I'll, I'll keep this short and sweet. But it, yeah, to a lot of the spaces that we've loved that may have seemed contrarian in the past certainly are now very much in vogue. Andreas mentioned a few. I'll add like, you know, HR was an employee empowerment was not a key focus for many years. And now with the future of work and a lot of that, there's no longer this disconnect between the most valuable resource you have, which is your employee and the, the resources, budgets and tools that you devote to those resources or to those individuals. So it's gone from like a cost center to now like the future of work. Supply chain and logistics was a very unsexy, like asset heavy, thin margin space in the past. I think people have really seen that this is one of the largest yet most archaic 
industries um, that I can personally think of. And now siloed data is open and available to really glean insights and make and really revolutionize that sector. So things like that have now played out. And I, I think you're seeing people throwing a lot of capital at those areas. Second question of the quickfire round. And Kevin, let's start with you this time. What's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started working in venture, investing in startups? Maybe not the best answer to your question, <laughs> but there, there are two terms that I started in VC with hating. And one was pattern recognition and one was board dynamics. And I've actually you know, gone the full 180 degrees in an opposite way on those, where on the pattern recognition side, VCs benefit, you know, we don't know it all, but like we benefit from seeing how these movies play out in literally thousands of different circumstances. When things go right, when things go wrong, an entrepreneur, you like certainly is going to be closer and more knowledgeable about a particular space, but we can help advise again from an advisor role, like help them avoid bear traps and see where there may be opportunities just based on historical pattern recognition. So that's, that's one that to me was really counterintuitive coming in. And then Board dynamics are really important. You're signing up for a very long relationship. You want people who are going to be there rowing in the same direction and being supportive of the business. And so originally I used to thought, yeah, if someone's not great, like, just put, you know, don't listen to them. But um, board, board dynamics don't quite work like that. Andreas, do you have any counterintuitive things? Just maybe one for me kind of is, well, everything seems to be happened super fast in startup world, right? Like, fundraising, record growth, you know, everything kind of opening new countries, you know, everything is so fast. But then when you actually take a step back, like building a company, a sustainable business, like a true company of consequence takes a long time. <laughs> you know, it takes much longer than people think, right? And there's a bunch of bumps in the road also typically, right? So I guess that is that is perhaps something that is counterintuitive, despite all the records that are always being <laughs> presented and reported about. I always say on the very early stage that to the founder, it seems like it's moving very, very quickly. To the wife or the spouse, not so much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sure. I want to throw in a curveball, and I hope you guys don't mind. Define in as little words as possible this concept of yours of a company of consequence. I think that would be really cool to hear your take on that. I think these are companies, we used to call them market leaders or category defining companies. I would say these are companies that offer something new, they disrupt the category, and by doing so kind of own this category going forward. We actually just spoke, and David knows that I can't, I can't help but follow up on this. We just spoke to Al Ramadan, the writer of Playbreaker, and basically the one who came up with the definition of category design and category king. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how that thinking has applied inside Sapphire and for you too, or if it's more like the broad definition and the idea of having categories that, that you're just applying. Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of value that accretes to category leaders. And then I think there's a lot of value in generation defining businesses. So you can think of some of those, you know, like like a Facebook or uh, an Amazon, a handful of ones. You think of like for your generation, for a 20 year period, um, businesses that have that have helped define these, those are the ones we're looking for. I do think there's a lot of value in, in finding market leaders. I do think there's a lot of value in changing the world for the better through technology, and we're seeing that. That's ultimately what we're striving to find. After Andreas butchering the quickfire, <laughs> not Andreas guest, Andreas host. 
let's round it off with a final question of the quickfire round. And uh, Andreas, let's start with you. What can we expect in the future from Sapphire and maybe from each one of you personally? We just had our kickoff for Europe yesterday. And, you know, I'm, I'm just super excited, like, about the people I'm working with, like Kevin kind of coming over here, you know, Annalisa, who, who joined almost two years ago, who's now a partner, kind of Imi, you know, the whole team, super excited about that. You know, Kevin mentioned we raised a bunch of more money, so kind of have enough funds to kind of invest in exciting companies. So I'm, I'm just looking forward, kind of executing on that and, and kind of continuing kind of on this path. Yeah, I would just say expect very big things. We've come a long way in the, the 10 years of, of really like Sapphire. It's, it's a much longer legacy there, but we've come a long way. And in the next 10 years, we'll do that, but in, in multiples. We've built out a great team. We'll continue to do that. We've raised a good amount of capital to help fund those entrepreneurs and those category-defining businesses, the company is the consequence. We're going to continue doing that in a much bigger way. So... Expect big things in 2022 and beyond. That's awesome. Guys, thanks so much for joining us here on the European VC and welcome to Europe. Yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate the time, both of you. Uh, this was awesome. Thank you, guys. Have you ever wondered how you can use relationship analytics to spot the next European unicorn? Europe is incredibly diverse and finding the next kick-ass European startup is not for the faint of heart. In Europe, no single hub is responsible for spawning all the next tech success stories. Europe's 381 unicorns come from over 65 cities and data-driven sourcing is integral to the success of European VCs. Join us in learning from the best, our partners Affinity and Dealroom, as we deep dive on how relationship intelligence can put your sourcing on steroids. Register now to the event at the European VC's LinkedIn page. The event will be held online on the 7th of April at 7 p.m. Central European time. Tickets are free, but limited, so grab them while you can. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The European VC, your podcast for insights into the European VC industry. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our Slack community at theeuropeanvc.com forward slash community. And don't forget, if you would like to suggest topics or guests for future episodes, join our community and help make the best pod for everything European VC. And if you are about to raise a fund or an international round, do let us know and we'll be happy to introduce you to relevant investors.